Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Davis Wynn. Davis, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Oh, my honor. After being here for a long time listener, my, my honor. Well, I, I appreciate that. I was joking offline that you were one of three uh, faithful listeners that we have on the podcast each week, but uh, no, we are, we are blessed with many, many more than that. But uh, I know that <laughs> we tried to connect a long time ago, but, uh, but I had, I had uh, already booked a lot of guests ahead of you, and I, I am sorry that it's taken so long to get you on the show. Now it just shows that your show's demand as well as there's high caliber guests and oh, that, oh I, I wasn't hurting while waiting. I was like, wow, okay, every week and a new episode comes out and I'm like watching and I'm like, oh man, that's some insightful uh, wisdom here. So hey, if he holds me up until August, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your patience and your persistence, but yeah, we have, we have been uh, blessed with some really great guests, but uh, so tell our listeners a little bit about Davis. Great. So uh, I'm the CEO and founder of My Consulting Offer. What we do is we help people become management consultants. So for anyone who doesn't know what a management consultant is, it's similar to a, a business version of a SWAT team. When a business has a problem that they can't solve, they'll hire management consultants to come in and solve that problem. And what makes this job so lucrative is that depending on where you enter, it's fast growing in terms of you get to learn as much from different industries. One week you'd be working with a pharmaceutical company, another week you could be working with a private equity firm. And for anyone who is recently in college, about to graduate or just graduate with their degree and want to be a consultant, that's usually who we work with there. It's kind of like starting at 21 and earning a six-figure career already from the beginning. And so that's very lucrative. And of course, the, the, it's harder said than done, which is or it's easier said than done, which is that there's a 1% chance of actually landing these jobs and we manage about 85%. But the, but the cool thing about the business is that it didn't start overnight. It took, it was actually a side project that I did on top of my regular job when back in 2017 out of my living room and of course scale to where it is today where we have between full-time and part-time team members roughly about 40 people around the world within the span of about three years so it all started in my my living room as a way to pay off medical bills and today it's what I love doing well I you kind of kind of skipped by the whole process so I mean this grew out of the job that you had right you were you were a consultant at one time Absolutely. So this was my first job out of university was being a management consultant, which was a very unlikely career path for me, actually. So a, a little bit to, so you know how unorthodox this is, is that so my, my family, they're political refugees from Vietnam, and they were part of the, the boat people migration. Yeah. So if anyone who doesn't know about the boat, it's about 2 million people estimated who fled the country on literal fishing boats yeah. to, to go to reach America and other places. And of course, you're on this fishing boat, you don't know if you're going to survive or anything like that. And so the scholars estimate about 70 to 80% of people actually did not make it. So you have this like 10, 20 to 30% who made it. So my family was lucky enough to be part of that 30. And then they made it to the US where I was born. And of course, because you were political refugees and they were farmers before, they didn't have much money to, to start a family. So we actually grew up in a very poor, one of the poorest communities in the United States. And in fact, at the school, the area I grew up in, we were so mouth funded as well as just there's so much 
so much difficulty growing up there because there was like a bunch of refugees, a bunch of minorities growing up there that my, uh, my school system was actually for a number of years called the worst school system in the US. Mm. So it's during, for example, during career day or during college recruiting days, you know, normally when you would have your universities and so forth come in, we actually had like the army come in, we had police department, firefighting department, we had Walmart come in, not even Walmart corporate. It's like, hey, you can run the, you can be the manager of the shift, right? So it's like <laughs> the, the type of jobs there. So going to university wasn't quite an expectation, but had a great set of teachers who believed in me. And it's just something I just wanted to do is improve the quality of my life for my family. So I ended up working and got lucky along the way and ended up getting full scholarships to uh, Yale and Harvard where I ended up studying for, for my degrees. And during that time, discovered management consulting because every summer I would work for a entrepreneur who I looked up to who was building something that was trying to change the world, usually in education. And at the end of every, every summer, my, my boss, the CEOs or the founders of these companies who were two, three times my age at the time, they literally said, hey, Davis, you're, you're a bright kid, you seem very nice, you want to give to people, you have this really, really good set of work ethic and values and caring. But what you should do is actually think about starting a job in management consulting first. So that's how I ended up deciding this career path to becoming a management consultant was through these three mentors. And so I, I went back to my campus my senior year and deciding to be a management consultant your final year is the equivalent of trying, deciding you want to be a doctor that late. It's wow. got like, usually people plan ahead. They don't plan mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, three weeks before the deadline, let's, uh, let's just decide to <laughs> shift this there. So, so I had about three weeks to figure out how to land these offers. Again, it's a 1% chance of landing them. And people, some people have, one of my best friends have been prepping for like two years to get to this opportunity. I'm like, oh, I have three weeks. But you know, a better analogy would be, it's kind of like, you decide last minute, you want to compete for the Olympics. That, that is the, the, <laughs> exactly. the, 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 the equivalent there. And so I ended up figuring out a way to get my foot in the door, get these interviews and eventually pass them. And so that's how I started my, my career as a management consultant at Bain & Company. And I love my time at Bain. So I stayed there before leaving for an education company. So in this education company, we were a startup, we were funded. And like many startups, we, we were funded. I was brought on and they hadn't figured out how to become profitable yet. It was all about growth, growth, growth from the beginning. And so I was brought in and we had about six months of runway left. And it was kind of like, well, let's see what happens in six months. So, but during that time, I was taking a, my, my, Part of, my, part of my income and my earning was pegged to the, the, the profits that we were making. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine X percent of zero profits, it's still <laughs> zero. Well, in fact, anything, we were negative. So I should have owed the company money, <laughs> if anything. So, the, so during that time, it was, I, I took a salary cut from, my, from obviously the cushy job at Bain and all sorts. And I'm still paying California cost of living, California taxes, except now I'm working at a startup that's not profitable, that's in the education space. And so the still loved it, like still one, of, one of, if not the best company I've worked for. And, but I still need to make ends meet. And of course, one day I, I get a call and one of my family members has a $21,000 medical bill. And I was like, oh, geez, I, I just don't have that money on hand. And that was the start of my consulting offer, which at the time didn't have a name. We actually did not have a name or a website for 11 months. And I was like, well, okay, I need to figure out how to pay this off. And so that started the, the journey to where my consulting offer was. It's just, well, I need money and let's figure out what a side hustle can be that will one, pay, pay the bill, 
but be, through paying the bill, I'm able to change some lives and do something. And obviously people aren't going to pay you if you're not adding value into their lives. Sure. So I was like, well, how do I add $21,000 worth of value to people's lives? It's a, I mean, it's amazing that you're kind of unpacking the story and how this, the, the business itself was kind of birthed, you know, out of a, out of a, a certain, a distinct need, but also out of, you know, it's like you kind of looked around and said, what do I have in my hands? You know, what do I have in my experience and in, you know, gifting and talent and, and abilities to, to kind of put toward this. But so, so you're sitting there, you see the need, you know, that you, that's what you were. So, so walk me through that day that you kind of, kind of formulated the plan for the business. You said, you know what, these are six figure jobs that I can help maybe help somebody get. Um, did you think, I'm going to, I'm going to act like a recruiting agency and I'm going to get, I'm going to get paid by McKinsey or Bain, or I'm going to get paid by the candidate or how, what was the model that you first came up with? You know, I think a lot of people, they think that you have to have this perfect solution for what the product, what the business model looks like. But, but the truth of it is actually, you just need to dive in and you know this from all the other guests that go in. It's like the, the business model you start off with is probably not the business model you end up with. Exactly. Later. In fact, our business model now is probably not the same business model from a year from now. And so for me, it was more important to start than it was to just ponder on various models and just basically get stuck in my own head. So actually, what the step before deciding the actual even niche that I was going to be in was just thinking through. And I, was, I made a list of essentially ideas of three factors. One was, what's a problem that I think people would pay for? Two, that I actually have an expertise in. And then three, ideally, I would enjoy actually serving. And so the, the question of the expertise was quickly answered because I knew what my expertise were. I knew what I had on hand, if you will. And the other was, would I enjoy it? Well, don't know. Don't know quite yet. But it's, <laughs> well, we have this bill. So that's what I'm going to wait for a little bit. And then, but the, the first factor, which is, will people pay for it? That's the factor that mattered. Isn't, so I joke that I, I like to say, it's not science. You need clients. So this is like any, <laughs> any idea you start, right? With a podcast. If you're trying to generate it, you need sponsors. You need people to pay you. If you're trying to e-commerce, you need customers. And if you're in a service business like this or any others, you need clients. So I, my, my first goal was let's, let's just find clients and figure out from there. And so I went through my list of ideas and uh, it just so happened that management consulting was actually the top of the list. And so I went there, went, went on forums that I was active on and just started providing value, asking people what kind of questions they had, and people start reaching out and I just saved tons of value. And at the end, I just made an offer. like, hey, I'm starting this program. It would help you become a management consultant and I would help you get the interviews and help you pass the interviews. This is how much I would charge. So that was the, the start of it was, does it work? And of course, my first 12 calls I had when I made the offer, all 12 people signed up. So what that tells wow. me is, great. Wow, I have money coming in. But second, it told me, wow, my price was way too low. <laughs> exactly. So uh, the... <laughs> people think oh i want everyone to use but it's like no you, you don't want 100 pounds and that means you're you're pricing yourself way too low and so that that was the start of our our business was me in a living room with these 12 clients students who wanted to the service and then the rest of it was improving it as it went on like the pricing the like i mentioned we didn't have a website we didn't have a name we didn't have bookkeep there was these things that people come to me, it's like, hey, David, do I need an LLC? Do I need, it's like, eventually you need these things. But <laughs> in the beginning, no, I, I just need to pay off this debt. I, I love that, the idea of just, you know, get started. 
just get get started and and kind of adjust. It's almost like the launching your MVP and and you know being agile and being you know adaptive as you're and able to pivot as you move and and you know as, as the market dictates and as experience dictates and as opportunity dictates. But so so you you had this idea. You approached twelve people. They all twelve signed up. So was this just you by yourself, or were you with there was somebody else that you were kind of working with at the, at the time when, and then kind of walk us through how the, the actual business was birthed. <laughs> so it was birthed that day when I had 12 people sign up. I said, well, now I owe someone a service, a product, a, a curriculum. So let's go build it out. So in the beginning, it was just my, just me because I, I didn't know if the idea was going to work. And of course I did definitely did not have the capital on my hand to, to hire anyone at the time. So it started off with just myself. And then I continued to service people and then did a really good job. Like the first 12 people, all of them, like despite a 1% chance, all 12 of them ended up getting job offers. And that continued to grow to the fact that to the point where I was getting referrals and I was still working my regular job as in love them, as in I was still working at the education tech startup. And I was, I was pulling about 50, 60 hours with them. And then on the weekend, I was pulling another about 10 hours a day. So that's 20 hours, Saturday and Sunday. So I was like, very little time for anything else. So I, I, I would say during that time, my, my time spent working definitely increased and then everything else just like decreased. And so, so I joked that it's like, oh, that was the only, the only time in my, where I was like, I looked at photos of myself and I was like, wow, I really ate unhealthy. As in when you're working on those, <laughs> as in you just want the quick, you just wanted the quickest food. So I would go downstairs and there's a sandwich shop. There's a, there's a noodle shop and all these other things. I would just literally go downstairs from my apartment and see what's on that shoot. Cause I was like, I probably had another call coming up or something. So I was like, <laughs> had like 20 minutes to eat. And so that's what I ended up doing was I ate so unhealthy during that time. So people look at that picture, they're like, well, Davis, wow, transformation. But of course you were, I was, I was just very drawn to making sure that this medical bill was paid off. And eventually when it was paid off, people still coming and come back. I was like, oh, well, I guess that this can be a side hustle that continues. And so Kept, kept it going and eventually reached the capacity to the point where it was time to, I couldn't do it on my own. As in growing up, I always thought that an entrepreneur is supposed to do everything. You're supposed to be your designer. You're supposed to be your chief marketing officer, your operating officer, product is everything. And then of course I changed my mind obviously since because when, when I was growing up, my community, which was low income, pretty much any entrepreneur did everything themselves. Mm -hmm. They didn't sure. hire like, for example, the restaurant owners were the cooks, they were the cashiers, they were the bus boys, they were the waiters and waitresses, and things like that as a family business. So that mentality held up until I was able to work with these amazing mentors. That's why I realized the, the power of leveraging your time. And that's when I started hiring out and I started figuring out, well, what am I doing that someone else could be doing to free up my time? And for me, it was a calculation of what is the most valuable activity that I could be doing. And so, for example, in the beginning, it was being able to serve and coach the clients mm -hmm. so making sure that they have a happy experience. So things like customer service emails or inquiries that were coming in probably weren't there. So hiring someone to answer those questions was priority number one. And of course, once that's done, thinking about where are the highest priority items after that. And that continued on until eventually came out to the coaching side. I was like, well, I think a lot of my time should be focused on marketing and sales. So then hiring out a, a coaching team that would do equally, if not a better job than I could coaching and caring for these clients. And so that was the second step. And then of course we continue to, to move up the ladder where I'm slowly removing myself away from the day-to-day -day operations while maintaining the quality. Like right. for example, it's just like building in these processes where if you want to be on our team, you go through like this 20 hour interview process. 
Wow, that's that. I mean, it's almost like the the book, the E Myth, you know, that talked about you, where you're kind of migrating from, you know, you're you you love to bake cakes, but at some point in time, you've got to figure out how to run a bakery instead of just baking the cakes themselves. <laughs> instead of working in the business, you you need to really work on the business. And it sounded like you made that certainly made that transition over time. So, what's the what's your team size now? And, and are you distributed around the world or is it still in the States or what is it, what does your company makeup look like? <laughs> we're distributed all around the world. So we, we're pretty much operating on five continents right now in terms of it. And so, and we, we, there are people who are full-time and there are people who are part-time, but our team count is roughly about 40 right now and it's different roles, right? So it's people on product, it's people on the marketing and sales, it's people on the operations, the customer service line, the things like that. And it's just making sure that we have the, the necessary roles into it. But of course it didn't happen overnight, right? So if right. you had told me a couple of years ago, it's like, hey, right, here's 40 people, manage them. I'm, I would have been so overwhelmed, but it's like a, a gradual process. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the actual business was launched when, what year? This was 2017. This was August of 2017. July, August was when I started making those. The bill came in and I was like, yeah, so around that time. And, and when was it that you really transitioned to full-time? You kind of, you, you left the ed tech company and, and you just started doing this full-time? This was end of July, so August of 2018. So this would have been a year later. Okay. So you had these uh, 70 hour weeks for, for almost a year leading up to this. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, exactly. I, it's funny. I only remember ever taking uh, two vacations, like two vacations. One was to my little brother's high school, what's high school? Yeah, high school graduation. And even then I was working on the plane, answering emails, like waiting to send once I land. And then even afterwards, after his graduation lunch, I went back and worked. And the other time I took vacation was during Christmas, New Year's, which was uh, Jump Cuts culture was fantastic. Is that they they let they all employees are given basically additional vacation during that time from Christmas to New Year's. So even that even then I was working through the business and so yeah. forth. So those were the only two times I, I took time off because if you remember my full time job was figuring out how to make this company uh, profitable and helping with the team, and so we were launching product and so forth. And uh, we had six months of runway, so that was like priority number one to me. It was just making sure that they're in the state because they trusted me with everything. And eventually we do turn the company around and we massively go from losing money every month to making a ton of money that we actually don't know what to do with. So that was the, that, that was, that was on the, my regular job side of it before I went full time. So when I left, we were actually in the highest point at that point. It was literally gotten higher since. And we gave them two months notice during that time to transition out. And anytime they still need me or need help or anything, I'm always one email away. And the leadership team is just fantastic. So I still keep in touch with them. Yeah. And you, you didn't burn any bridges when you left. I mean, you, you maintained those relationships and left in good stead. And, and uh, I mean, obviously I've kept in, in touch with them, you know, since you left. But what, what um, I'm, I'm curious, what part of the country did you grow up in? I grew up in the American South. So I grew up in Atlanta. Okay, because I was, uh, I remember that that there was a large. I, were these were these all Hmong people, or were they were they other other tribes as well from that from kind of northern Vietnam area? Oh, so uh, you mean when uh, when I went back to Vietnam, or in my home community? No, no, the the refugees, the the you you called them the, like the boat people that came over. What yeah. what uh, specific minority peoples were they? 
they were, so you, the majority of them were Vietnamese. So they were sovereign Vietnamese to be exact. So you have your Hmong as well, but a lot of them were sovereign Vietnamese who had just lost the war. Of course you have your Thai, you have your Lao, you have your Cambodians as well who right. escaped during that, during that right. time. So it's like Southeast Asia because the war just crossed borders. I think most people think of it as the Vietnam War, but also bombings in neighboring countries as well. Yeah, for sure. So they, like, there's this huge mi migration. So part of, part of it was we, when people came up to our community there, we, we were a lot of it were we were minorities, but on top of that, we also had refugees from other countries and other events as well. As in, it was ninety five percent minority when I was growing up, and it's like there were more Hispanics and more Blacks than. And I remember just growing up and thinking this was oh wow, America is so diverse. I'm like look at this, <laughs> and then of course it's like very very different, right? When I went to college, I'm like oh wow, the numbers just uh, got shifted. Yeah, that's right. There's a there's a flip there, so. Yeah, there. I mean, there was a large community that were in an area called Fort Chaffee in in Arkansas, which was not very far from where I grew up. So um, that was a. I was wondering if, you, if that was the area that you had been in. But so, it's, it's speaking of college, you you were telling an interesting story on a, a TED talk that I watched, and I, I will make sure that that TED talk is in the in the show notes. But tell us a little bit about uh, how how university plays into how how you call yourself or your name. <laughs> Absolutely. So, my uh, so obviously my name is Davis, and most people, you know, it's funny. It's like two things about Davis that you should know is one, obviously, most people think it's a last name, so <laughs> there's a reason for that. And then second is that my my family actually cannot pronounce Davis, so there's like the S sound almost doesn't exist in there. It's like the when you're learning Vietnamese and English. So actually, funny enough, they just call me David when I am back, which is really funny because they named me Davis. But the, the name actually Davis is that my, my grandma, she, she didn't go to college. My, my family didn't go to college. They were, they were farmers before and before. And so my grandma had this dream that I would go to university. So she, UC Davis is a university, a college. So that's it's also the city of California, city of yeah. Davis. So that's Davis, where it is. As in, I also joked, I'm, I'm such a fortunate that she didn't decide to name me like Rice University or something. <laughs> As in, Rice is great, but I like being named Rice my life and then going to dinner and say, can, Rice, can you pass the rice? It's probably, <laughs> it, it would probably get owed really quickly. <laughs> Yeah, I remember you tell that story on the on the TED talk. But yeah, I I just love the idea that you know you were named after UC Davis. I mean, what a what a great legacy. And I and actually I, about halfway that TED talk when you said that, I thought, well, then he he had to go to university there. And then you know as you went on, you said, well, actually, I got accepted into Harvard and Yale both, so I I decided to go there. But so I want to talk about like the ideal client that that you would have you would have first targeted or you, you target today. And, and I guess the first question is, are you still uh, primarily working with, with candidates that want to land these consulting jobs still? Yes, that's still our, that's still our market. As in, I, people are like, oh, why don't you expand? You can expand to like software engineers, product managers, and so forth. But for me, it's kind of like, I want to be able to really master and be the, be just the, front of everything for our one market and serve our demographic as much as we can in our client base. So we still serve the same demographics. And uh, will we expand in the future? Maybe, but it's one of those things where I just want to make sure that our own people are taken care of. So that's the first thing. And in terms of ideal first clients, so anyone who's watching this, who's building up a service business or just finding your first clients or customers, and I'll be honest, in the beginning, you're just kind of trying to take anyone who's willing mm -hmm. to work with you. Yep. It's kind of like a podcast when you start, you're, like, you're just taking anyone who's That's like right. going to be a good guest. And of course, you could be filtered out later. But in the beginning, it's, I, 
try to figure out, try to test who I think my audience would be. Is it like college students? Is it MBA students? Is it recent MBAs? Is it recent college students? Before you refine it. And so today it's like there are people we serve today and a majority, like for example, PhDs who I would never thought we would have served back then. And so that is the, the change that we've been through over the years is figuring out what is, who's our market and who can we serve and who can we add value. So today we actually turn people away because it, we don't feel like we can properly serve them or that they're a little too early to begin working with their other resources they should probably use. So we actually turn away a lot of people. But the, the two things that in the beginning I, I would say is in the beginning, you just have to be able to work with people. And I'll tell you, some of them will be head scratchers like, oh, why did I take this person on? And other people are like, oh my gosh, how do I find more amazing people like this? Yep. And so that's, the, that's what you want to gravitate towards in the exactly. beginning, just finding people and then getting feedback really quickly. Again, it's you can always pivot later on, but the worst thing you can do is stay stuck in your head and then all of a sudden time passes and you haven't done anything. As in, it's, it's like one of those people when they, they talk about, wow, it's December already. Well, it's just January. Mm. So, but people didn't use that time. They were just thinking in your head. But for me, it's kind of like, well, my, my team almost, I, I, I tend to hire people who have different skill sets to me. And so I have a bunch of my team members who are very, they're a lot more detail oriented. They're perfectionists and things like that. And sometimes they get, they definitely do get annoyed. But I'm like, all right, let's just launch it and just see what happens. And then we can pivot. And they're like, oh, it's like cringes on, on both sides. And they're, and they're like, oh, we got to take longer. And I was like, all right, let's strike a balance. So that's another lesson for another time. But for me, it's kind of like I have this whole model of it's ready, fire, aim. And so let's just ready the guns, <laughs> fire it, and then we'll, we'll aim it later. But let's see where we are relatively because we spent the whole time aiming. We're like, we're never going to fire. I Yeah, I, I love that mentality, how you, you kind of had to to find that equilibrium with your with your engineers and with your your tech guys and with you know the the product people that you have in your companies so you mentioned specifically about you know you're you're at the point now that you're actually turning people away as you were as you were kind of explaining you know the the percentages of those that are trying this trying to land these jobs on their own versus the ones that actually work with you i mean it just seemed like an incredibly you know divergent you know, gap between when, if they work with you, just the likelihood of landing these jobs just went up exponentially. But I also was thinking, I mean, is that partially due to the fact that you're selective on who you're working with? And you're thinking, you know, I, I can look at a resume, I can look at a CV right now, and I can say, there's no chance you have of getting this job. So I'm not going to waste your money. We're not going to waste your time. I mean, are you, I hate to use the word cherry picking, but I mean, is it, is it almost like saying, here's the, here are the candidates that have a higher likelihood. We're just actually increasing their likelihood of getting these roles. <laughs> it's a good way to put it. Yeah. So we, we, first off, we, we, we do filter out for people who we think have almost close to, if not zero chance, because I don't want to be selling snake oil where it's kind of right. promising this. Right. And it's not like, and so for some people, it is like really hard. Like, for example, we have people in their 60s who are trying to go in for these entry level roles, being these college students. It's like, yes, I know you have the capital and you probably want to do this for fun, but it's not going to be worth your money. It's not going to be worth your time to invest in this. So in that case, we do artificially pick the, the people as well. But that's because we want to be able to help them in terms of going through. And then, of course, we don't discriminate based on any characteristic. It's just more of holistically, do we actually think that this is yeah. something? And one of the things I actually look for is like persistence. Like for example, we actually had someone who just joined our program and she was actually turned out because her chances were lower given her background, like holistic, a bunch of factors. But she was like, hey Davis, I don't care. I'm gonna work harder than anyone else. And she LinkedIn messaged me every single day. She found my LinkedIn and everything. And I said, all right, let's have a chat as in. And then uh, we, she ended up joining. I was like, wow, she's gonna work really hard. 
And we've had that happen a few times and those people tend to be like the most successful as well. Is that we're yeah. looking for this, this workout thing. I, like, I can give you the tools, I can give you the, the roadmap, I can give you the, the mindset and so forth, but I can't teach you work ethic. And mm. if you have that work ethic and combined with others, this is going to be a great experience. So I try to create a great experience for the team. And of course, for other people, we actually turn them away due to fit as in personality. It's kind of like the idea that we, we, we can be a little more selective nowadays is that if I think that you're going to create havoc in our community or you're going to create havoc for our coaches, likely I'll just turn you away or the yep. team will turn you away. Yeah, that I, I, mean, I love the way you kind of frame that. And and it's it's interesting to kind of see the the transition that you've made in the last few years of going from, you know, I had the idea, I birthed the idea, I worked, I took about anybody, but now I'm refining who our ideal client is. I'm building a team and I'm actually, instead of coaching now, I'm actually leading coaches. I'm, I am trying to cast vision for coaches and trying to resource them and put them in a position to succeed so they can, you know, even hired coaches that you said were better than you are at coaching that, you know, and put them in those roles to succeed. But if, if we've got listeners that are wanting to kind of launch something on their own and regardless of what it is, but this is kind of the area of the, of the podcast that we really drill down and you become the professor here that's the, in our rising tide startup school. So walk us through two or three just foundational steps that, that you think people should take regardless of what they're launching, but just walk us through for a couple of minutes, just two or three, you know, maybe four steps that you would say, Anybody starting something needs to do this. Sure. Absolutely. So the first thing is you just need to test your idea. So I, I, I alluded to earlier, but I call it, it's not science, you need clients. And of course, even if you're not in a service-based business and just say you're an e-commerce product, you still need customers. You need money to validate that the idea is working. So the very first thing I would ever do is figure out how can you actually validate that this market is actually there. So it could be as simple as figuring out, oh, you know what? There are a lot of people in this space who are providing it. So therefore, and they're in this business, they're doing it. So that's a lot. The other is that if you're having an unproven idea is actually go out there and try to sell the idea right away. Because if you can't sell to people, then you're probably out of luck there. And the second step is with that mentality of knowing that you need to sell. The second thing that I always push for is figuring out where your audience resides. Like, for example, if you're into if you're trying to do something that's in the fitness space likely you're going to want to spend time hanging out with fitness people mm. so for example you, you had a you, well, depending on when my episode comes out david Tao came out and did a great episode recently where he talks about his passion for for the fitness space and of course it's like you have to hang out with those people to know what they are interested in right it's not like he's going out and going to people who are at these let's say who are in a bass fishing club and asking them, what kind, of fish, what kind of topics do you want to know for fitness? He's actually hanging out with fitness people. Exactly. And so it's the same idea that I think for, for businesses is that figure out where your audience is, is conjugating and you should know that market because it's just the product you're selling and then meet with them. So that's the second step I think about is first off, build the right mindset. Second, meet the audience. Three, when you're starting out, is worried less about the actual form and physical of like, for example, the box, the product and how it's delivered, things like that. But you just need to figure out what the problem is. And then for, start solving that problem. For example, if you are, I have a friend who's in the product space. And so he, he does, he does pull up bars, but his particular market are people who are fitness, like fitness junkies, except they travel a lot. So this could be like your digital nomads, or this could be your business travel man, but they don't always have access to a gym. And of course, one of the essential things you always want is a pull-up bar because you do so much with a pull-up bar and so what he did was he just hung out with a lot of travelers who were into fitness and eventually he tested a bunch of the products out about the bar so he was like okay what if it's this length what if it 
puts into your suitcase like this. No, it needs to be able to fit into your backpack. What, what does it look like? Form and function. And eventually, after talking and spending time with them and getting customers, he eventually was able to launch it. I think it was a very successful Kickstarter. I forgot how much money he raised. But essentially, it, was the, it all started with this getting close to the people who hang out. So he was here spending time with people who were traveler and fitness. He wasn't going to like, let's say Equinox or let's say Planet Fitness and hanging out with the people who are there every day. He was right. literally going out and traveling to these cities and countries that are known for commerce and going into spending time with people who are obviously not from the area talking to them about it. So that, that, that's the third step is actually just don't worry about the product itself and actually think about what's the problem they're trying to solve. And then fourth is just, I call it cupcake theory, which is, your, your, your grandiose vision is to build this amazing, amazing wedding cake. But in the beginning, you just need an MVP. You just need something simple. So I always think about what's the simplest cupcake that I can sell that will satisfy people's taste and eventually I'll work my way up to a wedding cake. But if I build that wedding cake and I realize, one, my, what, my cooking skills suck or baking skills in this case. Three, two, no one wants my wedding cake. Or three, it's just terribly designed. I just wasted this time building this humongous thing versus a small cupcake I can learn. People are like, you know, this is way too much frosting. All right, frosting to flower ratio needs to change and I can just pivot from there before I make this massive cake. So that's how I, I think about when the foundation of launching a business. I, what a great way to, to kind of wrap up our chat today. I'm just the, in, in a rapid fire. I mean, you gave us four really crucial, you know, foundational steps that, that regardless of what you're starting, I mean, if, if you follow these steps, I mean, it will certainly increase just like you do with your clients, you know, at, at myconsultingoffer.org, you, you increase their likelihood of success you know, by going through your program. But one, one thing we, we talked about just briefly off, off camera was the whole idea that right now a very timely subject is really, you know, this COVID-19, this, this coronavirus, you know, pandemic that really is, has virtually shut the globe down. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I don't, I don't, I really have a theory in the history of mankind. We've never experienced anything like this. I mean, this is the first time that the, the entire planet has just shut down at one time, but Tell me how, how, I mean, you guys are distributed, so you can, you probably don't have have that effect on your business, but how has it affected how you do your business and, and what, you know, just a piece of advice as we wrap up today for somebody that is running a business that's kind of dealing with this, what would you say to them? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you three, three lenses, which is I'll, I'll look at it from, we'll start off, actually, we'll start off with the business, goal, business tactics. So the two things that are happening in our business, and then I'll leave with more of a personal one that applies to business, but also keep it personal too, as well is, so the two things is that it has affected a lot of business. A lot of my friends in the F&B retail space are obviously getting hit really hard. And even for a business like ours, people are like, oh, it's not going to affect your business. Like, well, it's still affecting us, right? Because of two things. One is that, so a lot of the events that we do in person, a lot of the, of the, the marketing and the branding that we do are physical workshops that we host at these like, universities. Like we'll go to, let's say, a Stanford or we'll go to a Harvard and we'll host these workshops. And all of a sudden, we no longer have that option to go. And of course, it's hurting our business as well in terms of it. So we're, we're learning the first lesson, which is how do we make use of the best situation possible? So we're converting a lot of these events online, and which is great because it means that people feel safe when they're having these events. But of course, there are also cons, like, for example, the friction of someone just leaving your Zoom room is so much lower than, for example, if you're in a physical space, you literally have to walk across the auditorium to leave. Exactly. Here, people just click out, right? And right. But of course, it forces me to have entertaining content during the time. So it's like pros and cons. <laughs> So that's affecting, that's definitely affecting the leads then. And the second, of course, is that when there are people who are going through, it's kind of like 
consulting is a career. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing career choice for people to do as well. And consulting firms, actually, the funny thing about it is that during the recessions, and I'm not saying we're going to have one, but the internalized recessions, consulting firms still continue to hire. So that still pumps up. The, the con, of course, then is that it gets more competitive because not because there's, let's say, less roles or anything, but because it's kind of like all the other job offers that people would go to no longer exactly. exist. So everyone flocks to consulting. Right. So then that 1% even gets lower. Right. So then it's kind of like, wow, now we really have to be on the top of our game. We have to really dial into our service. So it's, again, it's two factors that's forcing us to adapt to the situation mm -hmm. as well. And we're lucky that we already work remotely, so we have to deal with that, but there's other factors we do. But so that's the two businesses. That the advice I would have is one, figure out if you already have a business is thinking about what change is one of my favorite books is who moved or who moved my cheese. Exactly. And yeah. of course it's, a, it's like, if you wait too late, then eventually the cheese goes away. But if you see the signs move those ahead because you don't want to be caught when all the signs are there. As in, I always think about you now our business is going to become much better at the end of this because our content's going to be better. Cause if I can keep people entertained online for the time, I could probably do it in person too, mm. which also when they can't just leave. Right. Yeah. And the, the second is that as we think about our product is reinvesting back into it is how do we have an even better product so that once the economy normalizes, then uh, people will still continue to have our service and work in consulting and all that. But the third, third point I want to leave with is actually on a more personal, you can do this on your business is that, yeah, so the world has never seen anything like this, but I also think the world has also seen worse. So during this time that I am now in my apartment and so forth, I think I've been doing a lot more reading and uh, I, I love rereading past books. And the book I was reading last week was Diary of a Young Girl, rereading one of my favorite books from my childhood, which is Anne Frank's diary mm -hmm. from, yeah. from World War II during the, the Holocaust. And then I'm reading it and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, things look bad as in it's not, it's, the, it's like my family and so forth, but it's like, I'm not trying to hide from Nazis. Exactly. I can still play Netflix. I can still play music. I'm like, I can still Zoom my friends. I don't think Anne Frank could Zoom her friends or watch Netflix. And she's like, like super, her family's like all in the attic being super quiet and waiting for their meals. But here it's like, we still have, oh, you know what, food delivery. I can't leave, but hey, for some reason, food delivery still exists. So come over to me. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Otto Frank, her dad, or can anyone could just say, hey, you know what? Let's just use Uber right now. Let's just order us, let's order us some chicken wings and they'll just come and knock on the door. We'll come out. Oh, it's so great. True. No Nazis can see us, right? So I always keep that perspective in mind is that there are people who've gone through worse and they had a better mentality. They had less and they made out of it and they still made the best of their situation. So if I were to complain about my situation, obviously if I, my business is being hit, other businesses are being hit as well, is that if I complain about it, it's basically saying that every single person who's gone through a worse time was less of a person. And that's just not true. Mm. So that's, that's been helping me is, is reading a bunch of people who've gone through much worse situations to remind myself how grateful I am in terms of what I have. And there's a quote she says that I will, I won't forget. So this is about, it's about a year and about eight months into being an actor. So she's literally this girl who's in this attic for a year and eight months. Imagine not being able to leave during this time period. And she says, despite everything that's happening, uh, instead of looking at all their misery, I still think at all the beautiful thing that remains. And of course she reflects on the fact that her mom is with her, her dad is with her. She reflects on the fact that she's made friends with this other family. According, she also gets a boyfriend during the, the time as well in the attic. And she talks about how she was able to have this childhood, this school. And then of course she's hoping that she'll go back to school and so forth. And so being grateful for that has really just changed my mindset about my business as well as my personal life is that I can look at this as a downtime or I can look at this as an opportunity to better myself. And regardless of what happens, there's 
life is going to continue. What a way to wrap up our chat today. And uh, I mean, Davis, that, that was like two master classes back to back that I, I, we got to buy one, get one free from you right there. And, and I, I really appreciate the way you just wrapped it up and really gave us perspective on, you know, how to face this, this crisis. I mean, not just from a business perspective, but, but really a personal perspective and, you know, to, to be able to see the good in, in this and see the bright, you know, perspective and the, and with gratitude and everything that, that this girl, you know, facing the Nazis would have, would have had experience and had every right to, to have a very dour, you know, outlook on life and, and just um, the way that she saw things just in such, uh, you know, a positive light. But, and I just really appreciate you taking the time today and it's been a pleasure to uh, connect. And uh, once again, I'm sorry it took so long for us to, to get together, but I mean, it was well worth the wait on my side for sure. So thanks again for yeah. just playing your part and just helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Davis, thanks again. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.